So flip your bulletins back over, and we are in week number three. I'm going to call it week number three, even though it's week number two of Unsafe Church, because last week was week number two, Unsafe Roads, get it? And so anyway, today is really week number two of a series. As soon as I, I, I realized it was ice, and they said, you just want to preach preach online and let everybody watch from home. And I said, no, I don't want to waste my sermon on, on an empty room, and that would be weird. And so I wanted to wait till you were here, because today's message to me, is really important for our church. This whole series is kind of an important series. Uh, the, the tagline of it is either, either we can choose to play it safe now and, and our church will have an unsafe future or we can continue to keep playing it unsafe and I guarantee you that the future of Journey Church will be, be very safe. So this is kind of a compelling uh, to your heart to get you to go even deeper with your walk with Christ. Instead of making this a weekend club, something that you check off, what I want for many of you is you to begin to understand that church is actually something that that calls for your life. It's a high calling. And so what I want is I want to take you from kind of something you do that's kind of just uh, not that big of a deal to understanding that it's taking everything. And some of you say, how do you know or why do you set those expectations? And I told you the first week if you were here that this series has kind of been birthed through just reading through the New Testament and seeing how different the New Testament church was from the church today. Seeing the commitment they had. Seeing what they were willing to give up. Seeing what they were willing to do to reach people no one was reaching. And then to kind of see what's happening. It's not that the mission has lessened because there's 4.8 million people that don't know Jesus just in our area. Not to count the rest of the world. It's not that it's smaller. It's that the commitment of many church people is less. And so I read in, in Acts chapter 1, it's kind of been our key verse, it says, but you will receive power. I told you that word power in Greek means dunamis, dynamite, but, but when, you, when you get filled with the Holy Spirit, when you know Jesus, you're going to become powerful. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. And we started there that last week. I said the word witness in Greek actually means martyrs. And just somebody said, well, why do you keep saying Greek? Greek is what they wrote the Bible in. And so sometimes to understand a word, uh, you have to go back into Google, because that's I don't understand Greek at all. I just Google it. So some of you were impressed until you heard that. And you go and you Google it. And sometimes to understand the word, because when you think of witnesses, what do you think? If you think of a weird Christian on a street corner somewhere that no one wants to talk about, and you're like, I don't want to be powerful to do that. That's weird. And so, but witness is much deeper. The word witness actually means martyrs. It's the root word that we use for martyr. He says, he says, you're going to become powerful to go risk your life. And then he gives these cities. He says, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they lived at that time. And in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You're going to become powerful and, and risk your life to reach people no one is, is reaching. It's a very unsafe Bible verse. We, we read it, we go through it, it's, it's quoted a lot, especially we're a Pentecostal church, and so especially if you're in a Pentecostal church, this is on the mug of every, every Pentecostal church in, the, in, the, in America right now. Acts chapter 1, verse number 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, comes on you. And so the first week we talked about an unsafe compassion, because here's the truth that you have to, have to understand. The size of your care, the size of your compassion determines the response to what I'm going to talk to you about today, to his call. How much you care determines how much you do. And so before we ever push into doing things no one else is doing to reach people no one else is reaching, we got to develop a deep-seated compassion for the people that God wants us to have compassion on. That's what a church is about. It's not a building. It's not a place you come. It's a group that you're a part of that has compassion or cares about those that are not in the group yet. So you need to develop this thing called 
compassion. I'll, I'll make it this, this really practical for you. The, the, the amount of your care determines the response to, to your call. If, if there's a fire in your house today, you go home and, and there's, everything's blazing and stuff's on fire and, 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 and the, the firemen come running out and they're like, they're like your, your, your plasma TV is on fire in there, right? Now, the level of your care at that point, if the, your house is on fire, most of us aren't going, I need that. If you go in, sir, you might die. I don't care. I need my TV because it would always be a dude that's saying that. And you pick the TV up the rest of your life and you run out. Most of you will say, let it, let it burn, baby. Burn, baby. I'm just going to go to Best Buy and get one of those curved TVs. I've been one of those curved TVs anyway since they came out. So you just let it burn. If you go home and I was with you and they say, hey, stuff's on fire. There's a cat in there. That's on fire. Well, what what we say? We'll get the TV. We'll let the cat burn. Like, I'm not risking my life for that. The response of your, your care, your compassion determines the response of your call. How much you care determines what you're willing to do. If you go home today and they say, they say, your dog's in there. You're running in, maybe. If they say, your, your wife's in there. I hope. <laughs> Sir, you might die if you go in there. How's my TV, right? I mean, the truth is, if we're honest, hopefully all of us, husbands in this place, are going, I'm going in to get, if you're not married, if they say your mom or your dad's in there or your sibling's in there, the, the response of your compassion or, or how much you care determines what you're willing to do. So before you ever do anything for Jesus, there has to be a deep-seated compassion before I give you an unsafe calling and say, hey, you're going to go to these, because this is what's happening here. He's saying, not only are you going to go to Jerusalem, which is where you're from, which is where most of them, the extent to where they've traveled, but by the way, you're going to go to Judea, which is still a Jewish area, but also you're going to go to Samaria. Now, if, if you were me, you're going, that's not that big of a deal. That's like somebody saying you're going to go to Phoenixville and Limerick and Boyertown and to the ends of Dutchville. And so anyway, like you're going to go all the way there and you're going, what's the big, what's the big deal about going to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth? You have to understand the culture. This is why Jesus had to develop a compassion inside of them to care about people no one was reaching, to do things no one was willing to do, to go places that had not yet been reached. He had to develop something inside of them because he was about to ask them to do something that simply was not even on the radar of something they would ever consider doing. Let me just give you the cultural context. They were Jewish. By this time in history, Jewish people and everybody else didn't get along. So when they said, hey, you're going to go to Jerusalem, all the Jewish men and, and women in this group, which that's all they were, they're going, that's fine. We're going to start something in Jerusalem. Judea, that, that's, that's not that big of a deal. When Jesus said Samaria, they're going, you said what? Samaria? Because they have been taught up to this point in their life to stay away from us. It was so bad that if they came from a Samaritan country, which most of the time, or area, most of the time they wouldn't go to at all. But if they happened to have to travel into this area, if they would get dirt on them, which they always would because it was the desert at that point. They, before they would get back into the, the, the Judea and Jerusalem area, they would shake off the dust that was from the Gentiles and, Samar and Samaritans because they didn't want it in their country. I mean, that's racist, y'all. If they would go to the market, and there would be some milk there, and they would find out that the milk came from a, from a cow that was milked by the hands of a Gentile or Samaritan, they wouldn't drink it. 
Like they were that distant and separated from these people. It went both ways. Most Samaritans and a lot of Gentiles made fun of the Jewish people. They would say, you do silly things believing in a fake God. You have this thing called the Sabbath. You won't do certain things. You believe all these weird things. They were picking on them. And so it went both ways. There was all this hatred and all this bitterness and all this confusion and all this anger and all this kind of I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you kind of thing going on. And so when Jesus says, hey, I need you to develop a love for people that no one's reaching, go places no one's going, do things that no one's doing. And by the way, you're going to go to the people that you hate. This was a very unsafe calling. And and I started to think about about this as I was reading through the book of Acts, because it, it resembles a lot of what Jesus has called us to do as a church. He's called us to do things that no other church is willing to do, to reach people that no other church in this area is willing to reach. He's calling us to feel for for people the way no one else is willing to feel. So that they would find a home where maybe they've never found one. And sometimes we don't understand this about church, about an unsafe calling. So I have four things that I really want to share with you. This is why I didn't want to talk to the empty room last week. That I wanted to share with you that I think are going to stick with us for the rest of hopefully your relationship and your existence at this church. And hopefully as it keeps going. But but here's, here's the four things that I want to go over with you. If we're going to be a church that responds to an unsafe calling. If we're going to do things and go places and reach people. There's four things we're going to have to understand about this church. Number one is this, is we're going to have to decide to embrace pain. We're going to have to decide to be a church that's okay with dealing with emotional and relational pain. See, we tend to think this a lot about about life, especially with church. If it's comfortable, it's good. If it's easy, God's hand must be on it. I used to think this before I started this church. If it's easy, if stuff works out, if our ceiling doesn't leak, if we get the permits at the right time, if, if, if something doesn't break at Limerick Campus, every, if the heat works, if, if all these things go right, then it must be the will of God. If it starts going bad, then, then God's hand is, is not on it. We even do it in our personal life. You find somebody to date, and if it's easy, and if it just makes sense, even though you're not supposed to be dating them because they don't follow Jesus, and you know it's going to go bad because the Bible says it's going to go bad, but you keep dating them, and what you'll say is, but it's going great. And if it's easy, that means God's hand is upon it. Tell me this. What is the saying that we hear often? No, no pain? Come on, you know, most of you know, because we've all joined the gym at this point in the year. About December 27th, you know, everything starts to get tighter, and you have completely just gone off the radar of your diet, and you instantly say, I need to get a pass, or, or I need to go back to the gym that's been taking my recurring giving out for the last 12 months. They haven't seen me for 12 months. I need to go back to that gym, and so January 1st hits, and then you're like, it's about the 7th when you actually get serious about it, because from the 1st to the 7th, you're still recuperating from New Year's and all that stuff, and so you're kind of getting ready, and you go back on the 7th. We did. We went back on, on the 7th of January, somewhere right around there. We go to the gym at lunchtime, and so we go in there for 30 minutes. And we work out as hard as we can for 30 minutes, which is semi-workout. And so for the last two, two weeks, we've been going. We've won three times every week. That, that's huge for me, people. That's six times, six more times than I've went in the last six months. 
And what happens when you first start going to the gym? You get there and you start lifting and you go home and your body is, is crying. Your muscles, what did you do to me? <laughs> right? And you can't move. I remember the day after we went, my wife was getting ready in the bathroom and I, and I rolled out of bed and I, and I came into the, to the bathroom and I was just like, <laughs> she's like, what's wrong with you? I was like, no pain, no gain. And the truth is, is in our life, everything that's worthwhile always involves pain. Any good marriage in this place has gone through pain, has been stretched through pain. Any person who's been committed and stayed faithful at their job for years has gone through painful situations, has stuck it out through situations that weren't comfortable. Any person in this room who's followed Christ for longer than a couple months has gone through pain. You've gone through season when somebody has walked out on you. As a pastor of this church, I realized early on that we would go through much pain if we were going to reach people no one else was reaching. That we would, we would lose people, that we would walk close to the gates of hell and there would be casualties lost and there would be cowards that walked away, but also there would be companions that, were de- that are developed that I would literally trust my back to if I went into war. And if we're going to understand and we're going to live an unsafe calling, we need to understand there's going to be pain involved. You know what I realized as I was reading through the book of Acts? I started reading Acts chapter 1, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. In the upper room, 120 people, they get filled with the Holy Spirit. The place shakes. They start speaking in unknown tongues. It just so happens that there's people in Jerusalem from all over the world to celebrate the day of Pentecost. And they go out there and they begin to speak in languages that they didn't learn because they were just simple people. And they could barely talk right in their own language. And they began to speak profoundly and under the power of the Holy Spirit, the greatness of Jesus Christ, the testimony of the risen Lord. And people from all over the world begin to understand these ordinary people. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 people came to the faith in one day. And then Acts chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, it's a pretty peaceful movement. I mean, they get brought in by the Pharisees, but even one point, the Pharisees, the religious people, they come together and they say, should we kill these people? Should we stone them? Should we get rid of them? And one of the smart ones, Gamaliel, he says, no, let's not do anything because if this is God, we can't stop it. I love that statement. Whenever somebody gets, gets critical and, 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 and angry and there's pain in our church, I always say, if it's God, it doesn't matter. If it's not God, then we're in trouble. God, let it always be you. And so... Everything's kind of comfortable. And what the early church started to do, under my opinion, is because they were growing, they started thinking about about what Jesus said, and they started to say, well, I know he told us to go to Samaria and Judea, but stuff is going good right here. Stuff is going amazing right here. Like, we're growing, and people are coming to the Lord, and I know he said go to those people, but maybe we should be the church that just stays here and reaches people. Let me give you some practical understanding of what this looked like. About three years ago, we were growing and comfortable right there in Limerick, and we were running three services, and God said at one summer, he said, move your whole church to Phoenixville and face the pain of people telling me, literally, it told me, you are an idiot. I wrote that down, and I remember that. Because sometimes you'll be an idiot to follow a crazy, ununderstandable God. And the Holy Spirit will lead you on things that simply don't make sense. And you know what? Fast forward three years, 
that since that, that's happened, or two and a half, or I don't know how long it's been, and it completely makes sense, because had we not had the majority of our church here, we would have never been able to take up an offering to justify having this building, and we would have still been setting up in the snow at the Colonial Theater, so shut up, you're an idiot. And I don't know who that was, but I don't remember. And you're not an idiot. I'm just playing. So chapter six comes. And they're comfortable. If you keep reading in the Bible, check out what happens to make the church really explode. Because they were reaching Jerusalem, but they hadn't yet go to Judea or Samaria. So chapter seven comes. And the Bible says that in this chapter that this dude named Stephen, he begins to preach a message and he... He ticked everyone off. All of his listeners, all of these Jewish people, they ticked him off. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 7 that Stephen gets stoned and the church gets persecuted. That's the start of it. He preaches the message and the church is, is kind of growing and comfortable. And all of a sudden, Stephen, the rebel, he, he, he gets something going and he gets stoned and he dies. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, the very next thing it says in verse number 1, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Isn't that neat how God got his people to go do what they were supposed to do? He did it through pain. Check out what happens though. It says, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. It says, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And verse number four says, those who had been scattered, watch this, preached the word wherever they went. In other words, it was through comfort that the church was contained. It was through pain that the church became powerful. And wherever these men and these women went, they began to preach. The Bible says that Philip went down to a city in Samaria. Finally, he gets there and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. The Bible says, so there was great joy in that city, and many came to know Christ. So it's through pain they get to Samaria. If you skip to chapter 11 in Acts, the Bible says that there was those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. They traveled even farther to Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. But some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks, to the Gentiles. It's through pain that the church becomes powerful, and they told them the good news of Jesus Christ. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. You choose comfort, your life is pretty weak. You choose pain, your life becomes powerful. If we're going to be a church that faces an unsafe calling, we for sure are going to face pain. If you're going to be a person who responds to the gospel, and here's the thing, Acts chapter 1-8 is not an option for you. There's not a one nine that says, hey, some of you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my martyrs to the places no one else is going. But for others of you, it's cool if you just chill. Just kind of play it safe. You know what that is? That's called unsaved. Not unsafe. It means you don't know Jesus. If you know Jesus, there's only one way to play it. It's an unsafe calling and you need to get ready because pain is coming your way. We need to embrace pain. More pain, more power. Number two is this, is we have to decide what we're willing to lose. One of my favorite statements I heard from one of my favorite pastors, Pastor Craig Rochelle, he said, our church, and he was talking about his church, but I've stole it from our church. Most of what I say is, is just stolen. 
His motto is we're gonna we're gonna give up what we love for what we love even more. You see, since the very beginning of, of our church, I've realized that if we're gonna reach people no one else is reaching, then we have to embrace being able to lose. Sometimes you lose people. There's been times that our church has lost really big givers. I'm talking like five hundred dollar a week givers. Because we wouldn't change. There, there's been times when, when people have walked away from this church saying stuff like, you're not, you're not deep enough. You, you, you require too much. I, I, I always, I'm always confused by that one. When Acts chapter 1a says, you're going to be a martyr. You require too much. You're too loud. That's John's fault. You're too dark, you use too much technology, you try to be too cool. Can I explain to you that, what my thoughts on that? Of course we try to be cool to reach people. My son went bowling yesterday. There was nothing cool (laughs) about bowling. (laughs) You know when bowling comes on ESPN, it means there's nothing else that's on. So it's either cement drying on the wall, or it's bowling. No offense if you're in a league, but bowling's not cool. <laughs> it's fun. At 2 o'clock yesterday, as we were bowling at a party, it was time for us to go to the party room, and we, my kids had a lot of fun. All of a sudden, the black lights came on, and the lights started going, and screens dropped down, and music started pumping, and they made bowling cool. <laughs> of course we're trying to be relevant. Of course we're trying to make sense of this message. We're not trying to entertain people. We're not trying to trick people into coming to church, but we are doing everything short of sin to reach people that you're busy criticizing and being negative about that you're not reaching. We're doing everything we can to reach those people. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. But we are in ready and okay with losing certain people so that we can gain certain people. See, you have to understand that there's, a, there's always going to be loss involved. I mean, at some point, this early church, they began to lose. They lost friendships. Could you imagine them coming back after growing up in a culture where they never even talked to Samaritans? They only talked bad about them. And Gentiles, anybody who wasn't Jewish, that was a whole other story. And they come back and they're like, we preach. And all these Gentiles were saved. And there's people that are nominal or outside of the church. And they're going, you're not Jewish anymore. Like everything you you are, you're not anymore because you're doing things that good Jewish people don't do. And all of a sudden, they're losing relationships and they're losing credibility with certain people and and they're losing uh, friends and they're losing all these things. But at the same time that they're losing, they're winning. They're losing what matters least to God and they're winning what matters most. People matter most. People. 4.8 million people, they matter most. Number three is this. This one might surprise some of you. But we have to decide who we want to be criticized by. Some of you have told me, I'm praying for you, and and I appreciate it. And some of you, you read Facebook, and some of you, I think, wonder why we don't why we don't respond sometimes to criticism, and that's simple because you never give a fool a platform 
Because if you give a fool a platform in your life, they're going to do foolish things. And so instead, we do what Jesus did as he was hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They fling money on the bride of Christ at the expense of taking it out on an imperfect person. They quickly fail to realize that, that even Jesus, the perfect leader, couldn't keep people happy. There's a time he preached a message and he says, hey, if you want to follow me, you got to drink my, my blood, which is weird if you're taking that out of context and you got to eat my body. He was talking about being connected to the, to the cross and salvation, coming through him, dying and being resurrected. And he's saying that to him. And the Bible says many people leave him at that moment. He's criticized by nominal church people. He's criticized by the, by the really religious people. At one point, they get mad. And they say, why does, your, why does your leader hang out with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus says, I've come for the sick, not the healthy. Which is weird that churches forget that. And so at some point, you have to decide. For some of you personally, you have to decide who you're going to be criticized by. You're going to get criticized by someone. There's going to be someone in your life saying, that doesn't make sense. You give, that doesn't make sense. You serve, that doesn't make sense. You go to church every week, what is wrong with you? There's so much other things to live for and purpose to live for. And as a pastor, I realized this early on. We have to decide who we're going to get criticized by. Many churches, they risk or they're willing to lose people outside of the church and get criticized by people outside of the church at the expense or at the result of keeping everybody inside their church happy. About five months into what we've been doing, we've been doing this for nine years now, I quickly realized somebody is always going to be criticizing you. We realized that when a bunch of people in our church called on the same day and criticized us for playing secular music and they left the church, I realized when we moved our church, we were going to get criticized. I realized as we start our third campus, every time we start a campus, criticism always flows. And I always want to tell the people the same thing. If you're criticizing me, that's fine. And I'm sure I've messed up. And I can promise you as the pastor of this church that over the past nine years that I've hurt somebody's feelings. I just did it a couple minutes ago. I accidentally called you an idiot. I'm sorry. (laughs) And I can promise you there's people that come back to me and said you've hurt our feelings. And if I've had the chance, even when I didn't feel like it, I've asked for forgiveness. There's many other times that we hurt people and they walk away from the church and they use a platform to to criticize us and we've never had the option. And you need to understand that a long time ago, I decided I'd much rather be criticized by people inside the church and people that are nominal in their faith than be criticized by the 4.8 million people who are outside the church saying your church doesn't make sense, your church is too snotty, your church is filled with hypocrites, your church is too quiet, your church is too this, your church and your Jesus are dead. One of the best compliments I got about two weeks ago is somebody who's been coming here for nine Nine years, which is rare, by the way. We have two families in this church that have been here for nine years. He came up to me and he said, you know what I love about Journey? You know why I've never left? He's like, I can bring anybody that I meet, anybody in any walk of life, in any situation, going through any pain, any shame, I can bring them to Journey, and I know they're going to understand, and I know they're going to feel welcome. And let me tell you something. I'll take that over all the other criticism Every day of the week. Why? Because there's 4.8 million people that are going to hell if their heart stops beating right now. And the truth is, if you're busy criticizing, you're not busy worried about those people. I have to be willing to get criticized. 
Don't you think that's what started happening? Oh, they were fine and when they were in Jerusalem, and now they're going. In fact, they went, you read, if you read Acts, they go through this. Now they're going to Samaria, and they're going to Gentiles. This is crazy. These people are crazy. They have lost their mind, and I think they're going... Remember when Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman? Remember when the woman with the issue of blood came up? Remember when the woman who had the alabaster jar came in? Remember when that man came up to him and touched him? Remember all the times he was criticized and those people were worried about what he was doing wrong and what he was doing right? And the whole time Jesus is saying, I came for the the sick, not the healthy. And they're going, this is fine. This This is expected. In fact, when we stop getting criticized by church people, that's how you know we're dying. When we stop, I'm gonna say it again. When the criticism stops, that's how you know we're not like Jesus anymore. Number four is this, is we have to decide ultimately who we want to please with our life. I I, I think this is maybe the most personal point for you, but also the most important for our church. I think most people don't start with this thought in their life every day, and you should. Your initial thought today when you woke up should be, Am I going to please God or am I going to please myself? Am I going to live to bring glory and honor to God or am I going to live to bring glory and honor to myself? Is my day going to be about the kingdom of God or is it going to be about the kingdom of Steve? Is what we do at this church, is it going to be about the kingdom of journey or is it going to be about the kingdom of God? Is it going to be about what he wants to do or are we going to start to cower to what other people want us to do? It's really hard to be nine years old and be six years into this motto and still doing it. Let me tell you. Because there's always pushback. You need to keep going. You need to go deeper. You need to talk about something else besides Jesus. We need to do something different. And I just always come back to it and I say, why? Because there's still people that need to get saved. There's still Christians that need to learn to serve. There's still many people who need to learn to give. If I can do anything for you, it would be to get you to move out of your seat, to move past making this a country weekend club, and to understand that it's part of a high calling that you've been saved for. And it's with that you begin to understand, I need to live to please the Lord. I need to live to reach people no one else is reaching, do things no one else is doing, go places No one else is going. I know most Christians don't care. Honestly, I'm saying that to you. I know most church people, when you go home today, that when I say 4.8 million people, that's why compassion has to be in your heart. Because when you have compassion, you'll begin to act like Jesus, and you'll begin to love what Jesus loves, and you'll begin to look at people different, and you'll begin to see that through their pain and through their sorrow and through their shame and through their misery, that there's life inside of there and that Jesus died for them. You'll begin to judge people less and love people more. You'll begin to be the most accepting, loving, selfless person on this earth. And you'll begin to care. Numbers are really important to God. Sometimes people even, they they get confused about that. Why Why are you so into numbers? Well, first of all, there's a whole book of the Bible. It's called Numbers. Why are you so into numbers? Why when you stand on the scale, why are those numbers important to you? Well, because it's my body and it affects me exactly. So the point is, the problem is, is that your numbers are self-centered. Why do you care about the number on your paycheck? Why does it matter if you get paid the right amount? Because it affects me. Why do you care about the number on your GPA? 
or the number of your BMI or the number of whatever else you have because it affects you. But when you love Jesus the way you're supposed to love Jesus, the 4.8 million people, they begin to affect you. That you carry that compassion and that burden inside of you and you live to please God. He's very into numbers. In fact, if you go to Luke chapter 15 and the Bible says that there's three lost coins and there's one, or three coins, there's one missing. There's one missing. The number he cares about is the lost one. There's, there's two lost sons, two important numbers, two. The Bible says that he goes after the lost one. Numbers are important to God. There's a hundred sheep, there's one lost one. There's 99 safe. He goes after the one. Numbers are important to God. There's 4.8 million people that don't yet know Jesus. Here's what I want you to start doing in, in our churches over the next two or three or four months, or maybe, maybe forever. Every time I walk into this room, we had a leak in here this week. It's not doing it right now. We're so thankful. It's a raining effect we were going to show you today. Uh, but we, I came over here yesterday just to see what was going on. And Friday we stopped through. And as I walked through, I always turn the lights on because you don't ever walk in a dark church. It's just, you know, it's unbiblical and scary. So I always turn the lights on in this church. And when I walk by, I just pray this. God, fill this place up. Simple prayer. God, fill this place up. Fill this place up with people that are into what you're into, that love what you love, that will go places that you want them to go, that will do things that you want them to do. God, fill this room up this week with people that are far from you. Same thing with Limerick. I'll walk through there and I'll touch those chairs and I'll just pray. God, fill this place up. At our Plymouth meeting campus when they watch as there's 100 chairs in there right now. God, fill this place up for your glory. God, I'm going to do everything I can to see that because that's a miracle. Just so you know, if God fills this place up, that'd be a miracle next week. But the truth is, there's always a a God portion of the miracle and there's always your side of the miracle. And so when you pray, God, fill this place up, what God's going to say to you is, okay, I'm going to send you a bunch of people this week. People that you don't like. People that you don't want to talk to. People people that you think are out. And I'm going to put them in your radar this week. And you're going to open up your voice. And you're going to encourage them. And you're going you're to begin to sow into their lives. Invite them. Do whatever it takes to get them to Jesus. An unsafe calling. God, fill this place up for your glory. Not with people that are already saved. I'm not talking to go into your workplace and start inviting people that go to church. Hey, my church is a lot better than your church. That's not what we're doing. We don't even have room for those people here. Not in a negative way, but there's 4.8 million people. God, fill this place up for your glory with those people. An unsafe calling stems from an unsafe compassion. Would you stand with me all over this house? At a Limerick camp, as Pastor Bob is going to be making his way to the front, would you just stand and would you just close your eyes and bow your heads? Are you willing to answer the call? The extent of your care determines the response to his call. You will never do anything for Jesus as long as you really only care and think about yourself. Some of you say, that sounds judgmental. It's true. And we all struggle with it. I could look you in the face and tell you, hey, you're really selfish. Or I could compel or reach into your heart and say, well, here's how you know. 
What do you spend your money on? How do you spend your time? What do you spend your mind thinking about? That'll tell you a lot of who's the most important in your life. If, if the answer is always you, 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 or me, 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 or my family, my family, my family, then that will tell you that you're building your own kingdom. And God's economy, all those things become secondary. The Bible says if you want to be great, you've got to learn how to serve. If you seek first my kingdom, everything else that everybody else is looking for, you'll find it. So what I pray is, again, you would say, God, give me unsafe compassion for the people you love. I want to go places no one else is going, do things no one else is willing to do, to reach people no one else is reaching. Pray that. I dare you today. God, I want to be compassionate the way you, I want to feel the pain that you feel for this world. The pain that drove you to sacrifice your life on our behalf. That pain. You gave up everything. Father, let us not see fit to only go halfway. Let us not see fit to be sideline followers of Christ. There is no Bible in, there is no verse, there is no scripture about people like that. I'm going all in. And when you have that heart, you'll answer his call. And I promise you, he'll begin to do things with you more than you ever dreamed possible. He's put you at the place that you work for a reason. In the school that you go to for a reason. In the family that you have. Some of you have cursed that family. God, why did you give me this family for this time right now? He put you in that family, that family of unbelievers, that family that's hurt you, that's ridiculed you, that's mocked you, and he has called you to be persecuted for his kingdom, to embrace pain, to embrace criticism, to be willing to lose, to go places no one is going, and do things no one is doing, to reach the person that maybe you never thought would be reached. And I believe as you pray that prayer, that God's just going to begin to equip you, that the Holy Spirit is going to fill you up, and you're going to become powerful. You're going to have power inside of you to speak God's word. You're going to have the mind of Christ as you study God's word and read God's word this week. It's going to come to life inside of you, and you're going to begin to change the way you talk and how you look at things and where you go. And he's doing stuff. For some of you in this place, the call that you need to answer is the call of salvation at a Limerick campus. I don't have a relationship with, with Jesus. There's only one way to do it. It's all in. All in, fully committed. Can I just give you the, the truth of the gospel as we close? The truth of the gospel is, is we all are the same, all of us. We all start at the same place. We're born onto this planet trying to figure out what we're supposed to do, trying to figure out life, trying to figure out meaning, carrying around pain and shame and sin. That's me and that's you. We've all messed up. I don't care what you believe about God. You know, if you dig down deep inside of who you are, that you've done some stuff that you'd probably be ashamed to admit that you've done. And so have I. So there's this road that we're on and we're traveling. When we know kind of the pain of life and know the sorrows of our mistakes and know kind of all that. And some of us kind of go to the right where we say there must be a God if, if, if I'm dealing with this. But some of us go to the left and say there is no God. I can't really talk to you today. And convince you there's a God. I can yell about it and I can scream about it and I can give you my facts. But what I found is you never argue somebody closer to God. There's some of us that go to the right and we begin to think there must be a God. And then for some of us we get really religious and we we treat God like a New Year's resolution. And we say, okay, I've messed up. I've done bad things. I'll admit that. And so if there is a God, when I do die, if, if, 
there is a heaven and there is a hell. I don't want to go to hell. And so what I'm going to start doing is I'm going to start act better, be better, do better. I'm going to come to church. I'm going to, I'm going to join some kind of uh, a religion. I'm going to become Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist. I'll do that. I'll buy a plot of, of land where I can bury myself someday and my family. I'll sign up for, for a church potluck here and there. I'll attend on Christmas and Easter and I'll try to be a better person. And I hope that when I die, that's enough. That's religion. If you ask any religious person, why did why are you going to go to heaven? They'll always list off what they've done. If you come to me and you say, why are you going to go to heaven today? I'm going to list off one thing. And it's going to be what Jesus did. The Bible says, for all have sinned. That's me and you figuring out God. And we fall short of the glory of God. The wages of our sin, the Bible says, is death, is hell. So why are we so consumed with the 4.8 million people when their heart stops beating? The Bible says that if they don't respond to the goodness of God, not about what they've done, because by their own admission, what they've done is going to fall short of the glory of God, that if they stop breathing, if you have a family member right now that stops breathing, that the biblically, what I believe, not what I'm happy about, but what I'm passionate about rescuing people for is they go to hell. You know, some of you say, that seems really mean. But if I look at my own life and what I've done, what I'm thinking about God is he is so loving to me. Because the wages of my sin, my unpayable debt is, is hell, is death. And he could have turned his back on me, but, but Jesus. I love that. But Jesus. But Jesus stepped into this earth 2,000 years ago. He walked this planet. And at 33, we murdered him. Me and you, our sin, we put him on a cross. And he hung there. And he said things like, Father, forgive them. Forgive me. Forgive you. Because we know not what we've done. And his life ended the way my life should have ended. And he was placed in a tomb. And on the third day, the Bible says they came to to anoint his body as it was laying in a tomb. And the, the tombstone was rolled away. And he was gone. He rose from the dead. And it's through his death, burial, and resurrection that I have new life. I don't talk about what I've done. I talk about what he's done. He did it. He saved me. He set me free from my sin. He's redeemed me. He's bought me at a high price. And that's the only reason I stand up here today. Because I know where you're at. And I know what you feel. And I know what you're going through. And I kind of understand the pain that you feel right now. And experience. I know the anger that you hold on to. I know the bitterness that's destroying you. And it doesn't need to be like that anymore. Your sin leads to death. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it leads to life. You were once lost, you were once hopeless, right now you'll be found, you'll have hope, you'll have life. And the Bible says if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus, this Jesus is real, that he died in your place for your sins, he rose from the dead, you will be saved. Your past, present, future sins will be erased. You'll become a brand new creation. Just like Paul, we talked about Saul, we read about him, Saul was a murderer, Jesus changed him and saved him, and he became the greatest missionary this world has ever known. And when we think about Saul... We think about Paul, the same man. We don't think about his past, but we think about his purpose. It's no longer time to worry about what you've done. It's, it's time for you to celebrate what Jesus did. And he's here right now. At the ever, end, end of every one of our experiences, just for a moment, we just take time to say, is there anybody in this place at a Limerick campus watching live and say, you know what? I don't have a relationship with Jesus. If my heart were, were to stop beating right now, I don't know where I would be. I've been taking chances. I've been thinking I'm a good person, but I know now, know through your words right now, I'm understanding there's no such thing as good and bad people. There's only bad people, and I'm a bad person, and this pastor standing up here is a bad person that's been saved by the good grace of God. 
Maybe that's you in this place and you would just stop right now and you would just confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. With nobody looking around in this place, you say, you know what, I don't have a relationship with Jesus right now, but right now is going to be my moment. But God, he's going to save me. He's going to change me. He's going to forgive me. I'm no longer going to talk about what I've done, but I'm going to boast about what he did for me. If that's you, would you simply just place your hand, just shoot it up in the air and say, you know what? Jesus is going to be the Lord of my life. I'm going to respond to his calling right now to Limerick Campus. Just shoot your hand. Just shoot it up into the air right now. I see your hand uh, right here. Is anybody else with me right now in this room? I see your hand over, over here. I'm going to shoot it up. Jesus is going to be the Lord of my life. I see a hand right there in the back. Is there anybody else say, Pastor, that's me. Church, you pray right now. This is why we do what we do. Every penny we've been given. Every building we open up, we open up, we roll the red carpet out for somebody to meet Jesus. Is there anybody else say, Pastor, that's me. Friend, you are the reason that we're here right now. If you're far from God, it doesn't need to be like that. He's much closer than you think. I see another hand. Does anybody else say, Pastor, that's me. Pastor, that's me. As you keep your hand up, I just want you to, to think about it in your head. And maybe if you're in church right now, maybe you forgot about this. But the Bible says when one person responds to the gospel... That all of heaven stops and celebrates. So as we give a golf clap to these people's lives, heaven and God, they stop and they throw a party and they celebrate. Right now, heaven is rejoicing because you, their son, and you, their daughter, you're coming home to God. Let's pray, church. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that we get to be a part of this celebration. And Jesus, I thank you for those that are in this room, that are gathered right here in this place, that right now, Lord, they are, they are reaching out and accepting the call of God to them, that you've called, and you're rescuing, and you're reaching, and you've done all the work, and Lord, what was true of them when they walked into this place, as they received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, as you redeemed them and set them free, Lord, that this is not true of them anymore. Lord, that they leave this place and their sin is gone. It's erased. It's as far as the east is from the west. Their purpose is renewed. Their passion and their hope is brand new. It's found in you, Lord. Lord, they're experiencing a love that they've never experienced before. Father, you don't love them because of what they've done. You love them because they're yours, that you've created them, that you put them on this earth for this time to accomplish great things for your kingdom, Lord. And so we rejoice and we thank you that your sons and your daughters are coming home and Christians in this place. Lord, we just stop and we just reflect on what's going on above, on what is unseen and not what is seen, Lord. And what is unseen is a celebration like we've never seen, a rejoicing because somebody was dead and now they're alive. Somebody was lost and now they have been found. And Jesus, we love you and we thank you for changing and saving people. Jesus, we go to the end of this week and we go with more passion, with more boldness, with more fire, with more purpose. Lord, we go into this unsafe world and we embrace an unsafe calling. And Lord, you're going to take us to people no one else is reaching. You're going to encourage and give us the boldness to do things no one else is doing. And we thank you in advance that you're going to bring people into this house that many people have written off. And it's going to be your glory that's evident in their life because you're going to change them forever. And we get to have a part in that, Jesus. And so I thank you for that. We love you so much. In your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, we got a lot to talk about today, church. Let's clap.